issues of property. And what about the economy? What is ownership? Is this appropriate? Goods. Properties. Commodification. Ownership. Property. Appropriate. Hello. Welcome to the new episode of the Appropriate Podcast, the podcast of the Collaborative Research Center Structural Change of Property. My name is Eduardo Heli. I'm a postdoc researcher at the Collaborative Research Center, SFP 294 Structural Changes of Property, as said before, and I'm talking from the German city of Jena. Today, we will receive Petra Gumplova, who is a dear colleague of ours and in charge of the subproject JRT01, called The Transformation of Global Commons and the Future of Planetary Ecosystems. Privatdozent Dr. Petra Gumplova holds a PhD in sociology from the New School for Social Research, New York, in the United States. In 2021, she obtained her habilitation in political science at the University of Erfurt. She currently leads a research project on global commons and the future of planetary ecosystems in the SFB Structural Change of Property at the University of Vienna. Her scholarly expertise lies in the fields of international political theory, global justice, international law, and natural resource governance. She focuses in her research on natural resources and questions of justice. Pedro will give us today insights and information about the burning topic of our troubled current times. We will learn with Petra what is behind of concepts like blood oil or conflict minerals, for instance, their relationship with the idea of property rights and national sovereignty. As a researcher of gen genetic resources of the biodiversity myself, me and Petra share, of course, many common worries and questions. I am very delighted to receive you, Petra. It is an honor and a pleasure to have you here at our podcasts. Just having said that, let's then proceed to the questions. Petra, what are blood commodities? Are there any policies regulating trade with the so-called blood commodities? Hi, Eduardo. So thank you very much for having, having me. I'm very excited to be here and I'm okay. really happy to share uh, my expertise uh, on, uh, you know, these questions that I've been uh, researching for quite some time. And now they have become, as you said, in the center of um, um, public uh, debate. So it's no longer just an academic uh, debate, but a burning, you know, policy question uh, that we are dealing with. Yeah. So, um, yeah, what are blood commodities? Um well, the short answer is that uh, blood commodities are commodities that originate from uh, conflict zones and um, or perhaps more specifically that there are um, social, economic and political uh, systems um, built around them, which involve injustice, violence, and, and other kinds of harms, yeah. Um, I think the, the most useful um, um, is to recall the so-called blood diamonds, because I think the name is derived from, from the infamous blood uh, diamonds. And um, as um, you may remember, and, and uh, maybe the listeners have heard that before, also blood uh, diamonds are 
diamonds or were diamonds that uh, originated uh, from uh, conflict zones in Africa, where the conflict zones were uh, mainly um, areas controlled by uh, rebel groups, military groups, uh, groups that control the trade with uh, with these diamonds and use the, the, the revenues, the proceeds to uh, finance uh, military campaigns against uh, the governments and the civilian populations. Yeah, so this has this has uh, um, um, uh, in the early two thousand. This has um, become in the uh, this has become uh, like the global public became aware of this problem and uh, um, and um, as a response, uh, some regulatory responses uh, like uh, this Kimberley process, which now um, uh, regulates uh, or attempts to regulate the trade uh, with blood diamonds was introduced yeah um so um so um so yeah blood essentially means that there are some uh, very um harmful and violent um um, um aspects connected to uh, the uh, extraction, uh, exploitation, and, and sales of natural uh, resources. Um, so um, you also asked me about uh, about the policies uh, regulating um, th these uh, blood uh, commodities. Um, so, like I mentioned, uh, in the case of blood diamonds, there is uh, indeed an attempt to regulate the trade with blood diamonds. It's it's uh, but it's important to emphasize that this regulation was um, invented and institutionalized as a result of uh, Efforts um, uh, by um, uh, NGOs, United Nations, and also with the participation of the relevant industry uh, stakeholders, um, it's um, it's uh, it's a basically a certification system. So it um, issues passports, so to speak, yeah, to uh, to um, um, the for the gemstones, uh, certifying that these gemstones do not come from conflict zones, and they do not contribute to uh, um, maintaining, sustaining conflict uh, and uh, violence. Um, but of course, um, you know, in, in, in our world, there are many other highly valuable natural resources. Um, and they, uh, many of them, uh, come from, uh, very fragile contexts, uh, as well. There are, um, highly valuable minerals, um, that are needed, uh, for, um, modern technologies, the so-called, uh, Three TG. Um, these uh, include uh, tantalum, tin, tungsten, and gold. And specifically, these four minerals are now also subject to regulation. They are subject to regulation in the United States, and as of very late, also in the European uh, Union. Yeah, they are. They are no longer called blood minerals, but they are called conflict minerals um and um uh, so just to you know give you more concrete um 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 insight into how the regulation works um european um union um 
in attempt to regulate uh, the trade with these conflict minerals, uh, just uh, introduced uh, the so-called um, uh, EU, um, uh, it's called conflict mineral regulation. It, uh, it, um, it is now valid from, um, um, it uh, entered the force in, in 2021. And uh, according to this regulation, uh, European companies are required uh, um, to ensure that they import these minerals from responsible and conflict-free sources uh, only. Um, yeah, so, um, so yeah, these are uh, basically um, um, regulations available, as you can see, perhaps. They only covered um, specific minerals. They only uh, address specific kinds of uh, geographic um, regions or uh, or specific uh, specific kinds of conflicts. Yeah, like for example, the, um, the 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 diamond, the the regulation of blood diamonds only um, addresses uh, situations where rebel groups uh, control um, diamond mines and and the trade yeah so when when um governments um um i don't know highly authoritarian governments control uh, their uh, diamond resources then this kind of regulation does not cover unfortunately does not cover this the, this problem yeah um and same for the eu uh, regulation it really only covers these specific minerals and not other uh, highly uh, contentious commodities or minerals and it also uh, um um um, um, you know, addresses specific kinds of conflicts, yeah, because it requires uh, companies not to uh, import minerals from uh, from areas that um, are in the state of armed conflict, fragile post-conflict, uh, or under uh, weak or non-existent government um, governance uh, and security. Yeah, again, when there are, um, you know, governments highly, uh, I don't know, human rights, uh, disrespecting governments, unconstitutional, illegitimate governments, um, there are um, that control uh, natural resources and use natural resources to, for example, maintain their power. Power, Yeah, there, there are no regulations to address this kind of problem. But I would like to add up different questions on, on this regard. But what else can be done, in your opinion, by governments in this sense? Are unilateral embargoes, for example, on the table? And why do you think trade with blood communities is so little regulated? Why does trade fail to tackle the problem of tainted goods. Né? Mm -hmm. Why are markets with raw materials so toxic? Yeah, I think yeah, the, these are several uh, these are several uh, important questions, and and I think we have to uh, unpack the problem step by step. Yeah, so I think that um, first of all we have to. Um, um, what has to be said is that there is this uh, uh, big endemic structural problem that we have in the world, which is that uh, there are uh, governments, there are governments which according to, I don't know, accepted uh, standards of international political legitimacy are, um, you know, not very legitimate because um, they, um, 
they don't respect human rights of their people because they are highly oppressive, repressive, because they are very corrupt. They embezzle the state funds. Uh, they use uh, the the state um, um you know the state the wealth uh, uh of um the wealth to uh um to maintain their power and um to um you know sustain this corrupt form uh, of governments and this is our most um um endemic problem that we have in the world and these forms of governance are often um you know sustained by um access to these very highly valuable natural resources yeah so the the main sort of stakeholders here are the governments not some rebel groups uh, um and this is also not about weak governance and uh, and or post conflict uh, situations yeah this is this is about the relationships between gover governments or between corporations uh, and governments who uh, control um natural resources from of of their countries you know now the next question next very important question is why this is the case yeah why why this system why we maintain this system and uh why such a um toxic system uh, actually um exists and mm -hmm. and i think the answer is that um the simplest answer is that um um unfortunately uh we live uh, in a world where natural resources are very unevenly distributed on earth yeah um, some resources are located uh, somewhere um uh, some highly valuable resources just happen to be on territories of some countries and on top of that we have this very uh historically contingent and arbitrary political system of of countries uh countries that were created um through uh um wars colonization uh, uh the borders uh of which uh, uh were established by you know all kinds of problematic means so we have this very arbitrary uh, political landscape that is uh, uh superimposed on 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 the geographic on on the geographic uh, uh distribution uh, of uh, natural resources and of course because because uh, of this uneven distribution of resources resources um, um, on one hand and on the other hand uh, the depend the dependence uh, um, um, of uh, western industrialized uh, and developed countries on those natural resources and the necessity to maintain the flow of these resources like oil gas these these highly demanded uh, minerals that are needed for modern technology yeah um, like the flow of these resources has to be secured. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, so uh, in this world, we have chosen, uh, you know, the, the rules of uh, global um, supply and demand and the market to uh, secure uh, the flow of these resources, also to make sure that uh, uh, they um, are um, delivered uh, as cheap as possible, right? Right. Uh, 
Uh, and uh, I think these are two main reasons why um, um, these questions about uh, who controls uh, these resources, whether um, governments that control and sell these resources resources uh, use those uh, revenues and, and benefits of these resources in some uh, in ways that are um, somehow um, you know, in, in line with our ideas about what is uh, distributively just, what is politically legitimate, uh, and so on. Yeah. So, so these questions, um, are, are somewhat sidelined by, uh, by this, um, by this, um, global system, uh, which has developed all uh, legal and 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 all the legal and economic institutions that were developed, which basically, you know, um, maintain uh, um, and facilitate the flow uh, of these resources. Um, yeah. So, so this is uh, this is uh, I think uh, um, about the question uh, why this is the case, and then. Uh, um, I think that um, you also asked about um, the, um, you know, what is it that, that makes these uh, then uh, natural resources compromised or tainted and um, um, problematic from an ethical or moral point of view? Yeah. And I think... Um, Again, uh, you know, going back to the, the examples that I named uh, at the beginning, yeah, we I, I think we have to insist that uh, um, when uh, natural resources are are used by um, um, by um, governments that are, for example, politically highly repressive when they are used in ways that only benefit a selected few. Um, when they are exploited and there is conflict, violence, and human rights abuses connected to the very process of exploitation, extraction, yeah, then these are all the aspects that make natural resources contested, problematic from moral point of view. And we have to um, look um, at um, how uh, we categorize these kinds of uh, problematic aspects, these Harms and what conceptions we develop um, as, uh, as alternatives. And now, Petra, jumping from these early uh, practices and examples uh, and jumping into the academia, in your point of view, are there, are there any ideas in political theory and global justice about clean trade and blood commodities? Yes, yes. Um, I, uh, um, yes, there are, there are. I have to say that, um, um, interestingly enough, uh, this, um, topic was quite neglected by, um, global justice thinkers and political theorists for a long time. Uh, natural resources, uh, were only, um, 
you know, subject to um, economic um, um, theories and, and, and uh, considerations, uh, but um, looking at uh, natural resources and connect them to some of the some of the negative uh, phenomena that political theorists speak about. Yeah, conflict, violence, uh, um, domination, oppression, repression, human rights uh, violations, or global injustice, global inequality. The link was um, established uh, uh, only recently, or political theories have started to explore these connections only very uh, recently. Uh, there is um, um, one book uh, that I think is very um, um, path-breaking. Uh, it's uh, it's a book written by uh, Leif Wiener. Uh, it's called Blood Oil, and yes, that can be considered as a, as 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 a political theory of uh, of blood um, natural resources. Yeah. So uh, let me just give you um, just three or four main arguments that uh, Venar makes about uh, blood uh, commodities. I mean, he focuses on oil mainly, yeah? So blood uh, blood oil is the most paradigmatic conflict commodity or uh, blood um, natural uh, resource. Um, and um, and yes, yeah, so he, uh, in his view, um, uh, blood uh, oil is an oil which... Um, uh, comes from uh, a country um, uh, and is controlled uh, by a government which um, um, is authoritarian on one hand and corrupt uh, on the other hand. Yeah, so it has it has the aspect of uh, um, the the political aspect of um, uh, of authoritarianism on one hand, but also it has this distributive aspect that uh, um, that natural resources are sort of um, um, usurped by that government um, um, and um, and the economic benefits that that these natural resources provide are used um um you know for either for the private benefit of a ruling uh, uh ruling party ruling clique uh, ruling network and and selected few oligarchs and um and and the wealth is not redistributed back um into the um society so this is the first level. Then, and then the second level, which is also very important in our research context, yeah, is um, it's the level of uh, of uh, of ownership and property question. Yeah, Venar uh, also argues that um, natural resources are a property of the people in a given country. Yeah, so um, forms of governance which are human rights um disrespecting uh, uh oppressive authoritarian um um and you know having uh, not the minimal benchmark of accountability and political accountability such governments um fail to to uh fulfill so to speak this this uh, uh ownership uh, the popular ownership or ownership uh, of the resources by the people because such governments do not 
act, do not represent the people, do not act in the name of the people, do not act in the interest of the people. Uh, so, uh, so this original um, ownership, collective ownership of natural resources by the people, um, is uh, is violated in 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 those contexts. Yeah? And the third level of the argument comes, um, uh, you know, takes us to the international um, level of uh, of global trade. Yeah. So then, uh, when when we have such a situation, and you know, one of his one of his key examples um, that he comes back to is the Equatorial Guinea example. It's a African country rich in oil, which has um, um, a government uh, that came into power by military coup d'etat it's also very highly repressive uh, regime and and um and uh, the population in equatorial guinea lives uh, mostly in poverty does not have access to the basic services and welfare um and uh, so yeah so that that's that's sort of the, like a textbook example yeah but then the question comes uh, how do uh, the question comes uh, the question is um trading with equatorial guinea and buying oil from equatorial guinea so so the next um important question is whether those who buy oil from equatorial guinea whether they are not um um responsible for uh um, maintaining sustaining this this quintessentially unjust uh, you know situation yeah, situation where oil uh, is where the people of Equatorial Guinea are dis um, um, are expropriated of uh, of their oil, and uh, and the government um, which um, controls the oil resources uh, uses uh, the revenues as a material resource to maintain uh, its power and repressive uh, rule. Yeah, but the question—I uh, mean, the political—the quest, the main question that the political theorists ask is: uh, Is it, um, um, from the point of view of justice, is it possible uh, for, let's say, like Western governments, liberal democratic countries, to continue uh, buying that oil without, you know? raising these ethical questions without uh without um ignoring the questions of uh, responsibility or complicity that falls on um on uh on on the part of uh, the buyers um um and um yeah so the question of uh what kind of trade this is whether the category of clean or unclean trade is applicable and uh whether the idea of a clean trade requires we only trade uh with countries or governments which um you know make decisions about natural resources in some you know basic accountable democratically legitimate way and also use the 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 benefits from natural resources to um you know provide um welfare development and so on and the basic welfare services for their people so they, this i would say are like the three main points and questions that uh, political theory of blood commodities raised.
An important question actually occurred to me, especially because I come from, from Latin America and partially raised in this tradition. Is, are there any points of contact between this literature and the concept of extractivism as it has been developed in Latin America and also in, in the United States? Do you see any points of contact between this discussion you brought to us and, and by explaining this authors to us and this concept of extractivism or are these literatures uh, evolving in a separate way? How do you see it? Yeah, this is this is an interesting question. Yeah, there are several uh, fields uh, of literatures uh, that do indeed speak about natural resources. Yeah, we have like the Ostromian tradition um, uh, speaking about, you know, like the questions, raising the questions of ownership and, um, you know, avoiding uh, ineffective and uh, uses of natural resources. That's one set of literature. Then there's this mm -hmm. resource curse literature, right? That mm -hmm. that examines from, you know, social scientific point of view, these connections between country being resource resource rich and then being um, um, struck by these several um, curses like authoritarianism, mm -hmm. um, civil conflict, uh, and also low economic growth. And then there's the, the, the literature that you mentioned, yeah, the extractivist mm -hmm. uh, literature, um, mm -hmm which um uh um is specific to uh i suppose is specific to latin american mm -hmm. context and mm -hmm. then uh, and it examines the uh um how um you know natural resources uh uh can um i think you know one of the key uh, uh mm -hmm. questions that the literature raises is uh um how to make sure that the country has a full sovereignty over uh, over its natural resources mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and whether um um you know whether the extraction of natural uh, resources uh, to what kinds of ends uh, uh it it the resources uh, should be um um should be used yeah so as far as i can tell these literatures uh, like political theory and global justice literature is not very uh, it's not very connected to the extractivist literature but i i see one point of uh, connection in mm -hmm. uh, um in um i think um what what the political theory of blood oil ultimately um proposes or what what like the ultimate ideal is that uh that the governance um uh, over natural resources yeah is has uh, is is transparent accountable that there are some really like basic requirements of constitutionalism and democracy in place yeah mm -hmm. and also that uh, the the resources are used in ways that really benefit the people and and when we say benefit we mean economically benefit mm -hmm. yeah mm -hmm. so i think that is after all a sort of extractivist conception mm -hmm. and it's extractivist in the sense that it sees natural resources as, as economically valuable goods that are very important for uh you know uh that that it's important to ensure that they economically benefit specific groups of people. But I think the question about um, uh, about non-extraction of natural resources this is like a wholly different, you know, set mm -hmm. of questions. And it could be it could be a solution to the to the blood commodities problem. You know, keeping those resources in the ground, but 
you know this 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 i think is is a much bigger challenge uh to um this kind of idea or this idea to to solve the problems of violence and conflict by not extracting the resources mm-hmm. at all yeah mm-hmm. um but i think those those ideas that we uh, discuss um um are trying to make sure that um uh, the extracted resources uh um um do benefit uh, those who are um actually you know the most legitimate um beneficiaries of uh, of this wealth uh which um are the people of of a given country now i mean another set of questions now but i mean it's still on academia for example and it's still grappling the literature you are actually dealing with so what kinds of responsibilities and duties of justice do theorists speak about when it comes to trade with natural resources and hydrocarbons in particular how do you sketch mm-hmm. this so like i said this is a very new idea mm-hmm. um i mean it's it's uh, it's new in the sense that this was only recently applied to natural resources but w- you know we do have such uh, we uh, global just global justice theorists have developed ideas um uh, of global justice for example in the context of sweatshops and and labor exploitation yeah so there are ideas out there that i don't know we shouldn't uh, buy um uh, products um um because we help to sustain a system uh, of exploitation and human rights abuses yeah so it's based on the idea that uh, we as consumers uh trading partners you know corporations as very important stakeholders are really connected to how certain products are um um produced by whom and in what kinds of circumstances so it's impossible to 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 maintain that you know i buy something and it's not it's a completely like ethically neutral uh, you know choice yeah so this was um this was uh, only recently applied to uh, natural resources and i think uh, um um i have to mention the name of thomas poge in this context who um developed this this idea of negative duty of justice it's essentially a, a concept that says that i mean it was developed in the context of global poverty and poverty alleviation and poge essentially said that we have a we have duties toward global poor and those duties are not just that we give them uh, aid yeah that mm-hmm. it's it's not it's not um it's not charity that we have duty it's another duty of charity but it's also a duty negative duty of justice uh not to maintain uh, institutions and structures that uh, reproduce the poverty yeah so we have um i think this really directly applies to uh, natural resources and yeah trade with highly valuable commodities like oil for example from from countries yeah where you have this this extremely uh, um repressive regime and uh, you know a population that uh, lives uh, mostly in poverty and does not have access to the most basic uh, uh social um services and and mm-hmm. uh, um and there's poverty uh and so on so our duty is uh, really um i mean we are 
important stakeholders in this whole you know chain of uh, of uh, uh, of response ethical responsibilities or moral responsibilities and duties of justice because by uh, you know buying those commodities we really directly help to maintain uh, the system in place yeah so uh, so um uh, political theory came up with this idea that um um trade yeah especially the buyers and the consumers have very important role to play to um to um disrupt this unclean trading uh, system yeah this unclean uh, uh, system uh, by not buying natural resources from governments that uh, have this these you know long term records of human rights um violations uh which are uh, highly unfree highly repressive and also very corrupt and for you so whom do hydrocarbons fossils actually belong who makes the decisions about the extraction the sales the trade terms and that question is especially important under the the main questions of the SFB and are the issues of ownership important in this regard how do you see it how do you judge all these equations in this in this particular issue I mean, this is. Uh, I mean, for me, this is this is a very this is a very tricky question, and I mm-hmm. think this this question has two levels. Uh, and I think on 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 sort of a purely philosophical and moral level, it's mm-hmm. just really difficult to settle a question: whom does oil belong? Wherever it is located, yeah, whom does it belong? And I think there are really no uh, intuitive, um, easy answers. No, um, and our moral intuition is, uh, uh, for example, to say that it belongs to the to uh, all humans or humankind, or that um, um, that it should belong to some um, I don't know global um, um, institution that ensures mm-hmm. redistribution of these resources. These are. These are, I think, not very uh, plausible um, uh, answers. I find, yeah. Um, so I, um, so because of the, you know, like I said before, because of the uneven distribution and location of natural resources, and because of the very imperfect and contingent international system that we live under, I think, um, and I hear, I really agree with Leif uh, Wiener uh, on this. Yeah, I think it's it's best that we just accept that this this system of sovereign states and their borders is very contingent um that's true yeah but i think it makes a lot of sense to accept that the countries should control their natural resources they should be basically considered the owners of their natural resources uh this also has a reason that you know we lived for centuries in colonial system where um colonizing powers or western trading companies just 
you know, appropriated wealth and natural resources from all corners of the world. And so in order to, to sort of correct this, this um, uh, um, centuries long uh, injustice of uh, exploitation of natural resources in, in foreign territories, yeah, we now have to recognize that countries that these imperfect, you know, uh, system of countries that we live in, but the countries nonetheless have, a, have control uh, over natural resources. But at the same time, I think we have to insist that there are some basic um, uh, requirements, and these requirements are of a distributive nature, but also of of a kind of you know uh, political um, 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 you know political legitimacy or accountability. Uh, there have to be some accountability criteria that um, then. Um, allow us to say that this and this country and and the government you know that happens to be uh in power in that country has some basic legitimacy to um to um make decisions about these resources and use uh, the wealth in 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 some ways yeah uh and uh and i also uh, agree uh, uh with uh Benar that um, uh, subjecting uh, governments to um, um, or you know looking at them uh, through the um, using the criteria of human rights, for example, yeah, um, uh, can give us ways how to distinguish you know legitimate and illegitimate forms of governance uh, over uh, natural uh, resources. Yeah, mm -hmm. so so I say yeah. Yes, the ownership, uh, the the ownership, the collective ownership of countries uh, is uh, is something that we can start with. But we mm -hmm. do have to subject this idea to a number of limits. And I just, you know, spoke about how governments should have uh, uh, should uh, be accountable, for example. But I think it also uh, uh, broader questions about, you know, um, broader questions about. Um, you know, ownership uh, or or claims uh, um, that some outsiders might have to natural resources or some uh, interests of the humankind in preserving or conserving certain uh, natural resources are very important as well. Yeah, you come from Brazil, and you know the the Brazilian um, uh, rainforest. Yeah, the Amazon uh, has been. You know, such such a contentious uh, embodies the conflict really well. Yeah. So, mm -hmm. is it really like Brazilian property? Can mm -hmm. really can Brazil really uh, do with uh, with the rainforest whatever it deems necessary? Uh, mm -hmm. Can it? cut it to, um, you know, use it for its own uh, economic uh, um, benefit? Or are there some other uh, really compelling interests by the humankind or by, um, I don't know, maybe also other species, um, um, future generations, um, interest in maintaining the biodiversity in, in, in preserving the ecosystem services of the Amazon. Yeah. So this is such a, you know, such a profound conflict that I think uh, also leads to a conclusion that this you know question of ownership and collective ownership by by people of a given country has to come with a lots of limits 
lots of limits, yes. So it cannot be the liberal idea of ownership where you are like the owner and you have a full autonomy to decide what to do with the property and you don't have to um, uh, consider the distributive uh, consequences. You don't have to consider the interests of uh, of others in your property because you know, it's, it's sort of a demand of this liberal uh, idea of ownership that you act in your self-interest, that you use the property for yourself, uh, and so on. Yeah. So, um, the, 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 the collective ownership of natural resources can, we have to develop a, a different idea of ownership for that. Coming back to the European stage. And now I will, I would like to pose you. As a pivotal question of our time, especially after the invasion of Ukraine by the Russian army. In your opinion, by bringing to us, by bringing to this podcast, this literature, the discussions on the academia and so on, are Russia's fossils bloody and why? And how can we determine it? How we, how can, how can we judge it as a bloody as a bloody resource. How we can assess this with, uh, under a more temperate view and a more legal frame? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Of course, this is, this is such a, this is such a hugely relevant question. And I have to say that this really preoccupies my, uh, uh, my mind and, uh, my work, uh, in the recent weeks. Um, um, yeah, to a great extent. Yeah. So here's my answer. I think that, um, um, this, this conception of blood oil that Leif Bernard developed is, 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 is a good starting point. Yeah. So I think we can subject Russia to the kind of critique that uh, Bernard proposed. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, it's becoming, um, it has become quite uh, um, uh, an authoritarian uh, country. I mean, for example, according to Freedom House, it is really among the, um, the those really like the least 20 percent of least unfree uh, countries uh, in the world there is no meaningful separation of powers uh um not really free elections uh the, um, there is uh, one dominating party uh there is um not an independent judiciary there's dominance of security uh, services uh in the country and and also what comes hand in hand with this is is the you know how how the countries uh, organized economically how how the um how it uses its wealth how it generates wealth by what by what economic system and and how it uh, how the wealth is redistributed uh and um so so this is of course uh, also an important question but the problem is that russia has not been the, the the kind of i mean it's not equatorial guinea yeah it's not it's not um it's not the, um, the it's a different level uh, of uh, corruption and it's it's a different level of uh, inequality that exists in russia there is like not a majority of the country lives below poverty line um um and so on yeah so so i think that um it it makes it it makes it a, a very um uh, challenging case what also makes it very challenging is that uh, europe has gotten into a very dependent relationship on on russia's uh, fossil fuels yeah so the idea that like for example european countries subject russia to clean trade requirements it's really uh, at the 
like until recently is is very it, it was very absurd because uh um you know um also because like people many people in germany would tell you we believe that the trade uh with russia um uh will have very important consequences in bringing russia closer to europe and uh, mm-hmm. um um you know supporting kind of liberalization and democratization uh, reforms yeah so so um so there are quite a few reasons why um why uh russia the the trading relationships between democratic countries uh, of europe European Union and Russia, um, and you know, uh, especially with fossil fuels, really, um, um, it's 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 a bit challenging to to place it within as as a as a sort of um, a paradigmatic or textbook uh, case in 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 Benar's uh, theory. Uh, but I think that um, uh, the context of uh, of the aggressive war that uh, Russia now wages against Ukraine gives us um, uh, quite a different, but also a much more compelling uh, context where we can, you know, say that this is such such an unjust act yeah it's 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 a kind of uh transnational or um you know global or international uh injustice yeah to to uh, um um to attack uh, another uh, sovereign country um by force with an aim to completely um you know um disestablish the sovereignty and the independence of that country uh, uh prevent the country from having some you know independent international relations and so on yeah and and so so what Russia does in Ukraine, uh, you know, this is this is this is a whole new level of injustice. Yeah, it's an injustice according to international law. It's an injustice that violates the prohibition of the aggressive use of force. Um, there are a number of um, you know violations concerning not just human rights of Ukrainian people, but you know violations of uh, uh, of uh, humanitarian law. Um, there are uh, good reasons to believe that Russia commits war crimes. Yeah, so this is like a level. Uh, this is a level of criminality that we speak about and you know there's blood in in quite literal sense of the term in a strongest sense of the term you know there are um because of the violence and the destruction that the war involves so i think this gives us um even stronger uh, context where we can or where we should consider um uh whether by you know buying commodities from a country that uh, engages that commits you know and here again i would say this is not it's not in just it's a level of criminality we're dealing uh with here yeah so trading with uh with such a criminal uh, regime yeah uh, whether it's um morally uh, permissible um, so uh, it's now no longer a question of the kinds of responsibilities we have toward the Russian people as owners of their fossil fuels. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a question of uh, um, how do we act? Um, um, how do we act? Uh, 
as uh, you know a community uh, of countries or individual countries that maybe have not just moral responsibility but even legal duty to sanction the breaches, uh, you know, these multiple breaches mm. of international law. So I think that in this context, we're actually moving um, uh, from um, questions of um, um, responsibilities and duties of justice to legal sort of obligations to uh, not to trade uh, with a regime that um, uh, threatens uh, you know, peace and security. Yeah. So, as a way of sanctioning these breaches of the most fundamental norms of international law, yeah, the question of uh, of trading, um, uh, this like discontinued trading relations or imposed embargoes, I think has to be really considered on this kind of level. And we are coming, Petra, to an end with our. A podcast session right now but before we depart i would like to to ask you one last question which is why it is important for you in your opinion to discontinue the blue trade who is responsible actually i mean to do it in the end of the day who are the actors who are the uh, institutions who are actually committed to this to put an end into this kind of trade. Yeah, so we're speaking, yeah, uh, I suppose we're speaking about Russia and, uh, and uh, yeah, um, I think, one, you know, one, one, um, one thing that uh, needs to be uh, emphasized uh, also, uh, I mean, it may, you may, it may or may not be really important. I mean, it is important on, 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 on sort of practical level, but uh, I think for the, for the coherence of the, of the moral and legal argument, it may not be so important in the end. And that's the fact that, you know, uh, Russia's wealth, um, really is, uh, built on, uh, on, on the export of its fossil fuels. Yeah. So, so there is quite a clear link between, uh, um, you know, between the the economic might and and the ability of um uh, a russian state or russian government to you know sustain uh, this war yeah because obviously uh the the, the huge the, the you know it's billions and billions of euros or dollars yeah that we pay for for its fossil fuels yeah so so it indeed does uh, um clearly uh, is it's the main resource and uh, um and main uh, economic uh, asset um um uh, for russia yeah so whether we continue the trade uh, whether we continue buying uh, oil and gas more specifically from russia it really is a number one question uh if we think about um you know weakening the link between uh you know russia's uh, economic uh, might and and the kinds of you know actions that uh, uh it uh, engages yeah but your question was about who has um you know who are the main sort of uh, stakeholders here and who is who uh, has this who has this kind of obligation and um uh, and so on yeah so you know um 
I think if we accept the the, the kind of you know in the the kind of international law argument that I uh, just presented just while ago, yeah, if we accept that this is this is this is a profound you know violation and breach of international law, it's a level of um, international legal criminality. Then, um, then I think we're, like I said, we're moving, uh, from the level of sort of, you know, moral uh, responsibility to the level of legal obligation. Yeah. And I think that this legal obligation actually falls on every single country in the world. Yeah. Like normally, um, Security Council has the main task of Security Council is to make sure, um, uh, uh, to maintain peace and security. So it, it is the body that has authority and legitimacy to, uh, um, um, I mean, it, it has authority to, um, uh, to sanction the use of military force, but it also uh, has authority to, uh, impose the kinds of, um, uh, embargoes and sanctions, trade sanctions, uh, on countries, uh, um, that, um, you know, threaten um, uh, peace and security uh, in the world. Yeah. So now, because of the how uh, the body, um, you know, works, and the fact that Russia is actually a permanent member of Security Council, so Security Council is actually uh, unable to perform this this role for which uh, uh, it has authority. Uh, but if that's the case, then I think um, every single country has uh, a sort of um, um, uh, obligation to, you know, do everything to uh, not to assist with the, this kind of uh, criminal behavior, to do everything to stop it. And I think we can interpret that as, um, you know, every country actually having uh, sort of obligations not to uh, support uh, the regime by not, you know, buying its fossil fuels because uh, it uses uh, it as, um, to um, keep um, its war machine going, and uh, uh, it obviously uh, makes it capable to keep engaging in this in, in this criminal behavior. Yeah, so um, so um, I think it it is indeed a, a sort of duty or obligation, if you wish, that uh, actually falls on every country in the world, in so far as as the countries really are interested in maintaining an international system where um, you know we where we respect like the most basic rules and one of the most basic rules of our international system is that we um you know we don't attack one another for frivolous neo-imperial reasons yeah mm -hmm. and that we really uh, abstain from the use of aggressive force so Insofar as we care about this, then we all have uh, an obligation to do everything to sanction the um, the violation of of this of this fundamental rule of international law. There was a talk between me, Eduardo Heli, and Petra Goplova. We talked to each other remotely on 15th June 2022. If you liked the episode, you can join us on Twitter, on Spotify. Or you may also visit our website. We wish you all the best. See you next time. And bye-bye. Appropriate.
Diese Podcast-Reihe entsteht im Rahmen des Sonderforschungsbereichs Transregio 294 Strukturwandel des Eigentums und wird gefördert durch die Deutsche Forschungsgemeinschaft DFG unter der Fördernummer SFB TRR 294-1-424-638-267.